Sarah, it was just supposed to be me and you going away this weekend. This is a good town with good people. Whatever you do, don't go into the workshop. That's the trailer for the new independent Australian horror, thriller and black comedy, The Faceless Man. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by The Faceless Man writer and director James DiMartino. It's hard to describe the plot for The Faceless Man, so I get James to explain it to us early in this episode. I don't need to give much of an intro here because everything about the film is covered extensively in this episode, including details on where you can see it over the next couple of weeks. Anyway, enjoy. He does have a conscience in some way, but he's kind of like a uh, just a, a madman who can out-drink, out-last, out-fun everyone all the time. Luke's interpretation of that was uh, probably more extreme than what I had written on the page or envisaged myself. The day that we were going out to shoot the open water scenes, we were told that there were some dead whale carcasses that were bringing in real tiger sharks and great white sharks, and they'd been sighted in the area. We were told not to go in the water. I could just see instantly that how talented Rhiannon was, and there was just it really blew me away. There is still a bit of a, a boys' club out there for sure. And also with Dee Wallace, she gave me great input on the script for this to make her have a very pro-choice stance throughout the film. And the simple fact is. The movie, the whole thing occurs because a right-wing guy blows up a clinic. Very organically, somehow, the name The Comet Kids popped up and we sort of just kind of based the movie around that name. Like, it happened really quickly. We kind of thought, like, that's a really great name for a movie. Like, what is, who are the Comet Kids? We just thought it was very, very important to uh, start writing more roles for women and uh, women not just, as I said, as girlfriends, mothers and people in love, but women who are their own people as we are. (laughs) James DiMartino, thank you very much for uh, joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, uh, so the film premieres uh, on October thirty-one, Halloween. Uh, how are you feeling about that? Is it is it getting exciting now? Yeah, it is. Um, we've actually got the monster, the sold-out monster festival screening on the um, on the twelfth. So that'll and that'll be a really good um, little indicator to us uh, before we do the uh, the red carpet premiere. Mm. So um, so yeah, and then you know the red carpet premiere is on the like you said on Halloween the thirty-first. So it's going to be a bit different. You know, we've set it up so that it's going to be kind of like a um, an event for people to come to. So start off at six o'clock with red carpet, and then seven o'clock the um, the, the film will start, and then for those that wanted to stay for the after party or got the, the, the VIP ticket, we've got a bit of a party going on after the film at um, our classic cinemas. So, mm. so, yeah, it's been pretty good. Have you watched the film with an audience yet? 
Uh, yeah, we've had our, we've had the very first cast and crew screening. Mm. Uh, that was about uh, a month and a bit ago, mm. um, and that was a quite a strong response we got from um, from. And that was just basically ca- some key cast crew members, and then a few special guests that came in and watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how was that for you personally to watch it with these people that you that you spent so long making the film with? Um, well, it, it's hard, you know, like, um, no, I mean, it can be a bit of an overwhelming experience as well, because everyone just has opinion mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and I think especially at the indie level, um, everyone's like, oh, what, what, you should try and do that or you should try and do this or, you know, what, you know, and just everyone's got their opinion. <laughs> but I think as a director, you really got to be able to stand by your film and, you know, your decisions you make and then... It was um, it was quite funny, but like yeah, so everyone just has their opinions. But then you know the film's been reviewed quite a quite a few times recently, and we've gotten quite a few um, really uh, positive reviews based on based on the film. So um, that was probably one of the you know uh, I guess when you make something so diverse like this, you're going to get people that really like it, and then people that are very confused by it. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing I think. Because the film's so, um, it's a very different. It's a very different film. So. It, it really is. Um, you you explore many themes in the Faceless Man. I mean, uh, mm. from parental neglect to family abandonment, and you also mm. explore uh, fear and anxiety, which comes from your personal experiences having been diagnosed uh, with cancer when you mm. were eighteen. Uh, mm. Can you tell us about that and and how you incorporated that experience into the Faceless Man? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I was actually I was actually nineteen at the mm-hmm. time. So I mean, yeah, eighteen, nineteen. It's still quite young, and you know, you have a lot of um, and you have a lot of like things that you want to do. You think you're one thing. A lot of people think they're invincible, and you know, you, a lot of people think that um, you know they don't really have those kind of they don't really get to experience those kind of feelings so young. So I think that um, I got to experience that fear and the grittiness of hospital life, and you know. Um, and you know, nearly dying, I guess, um, uh, and all those, all those, all those anxieties and fear of the unknown, and, and not knowing what was going to happen, and feeling, you know, really, um, almost like you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and um, and seeing that, like, you know, you're, you can't do what other people can do. And that, you know, and the strain it just puts on your family. You know, like I was lucky that. I had a good family that, you know, helped me. But I guess I wanted to try and put those feelings and emotions into a film and try and, you know, try and get what it was like for a character to just um, get pushed to the limit, you know, and just really um, try and drive those fears and anxiety of, of what it felt like and try to put it on like, on screen, really. Mm-hmm. Um, did... did- did this did this experience uh, drive you to want to make this film even more? Uh, were, were you always uh, determined to become a filmmaker? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's quite funny you say that because, like, uh, uh, you know, it, going back to you know when I was even younger, like you know, fifteen, sixteen, in in like you know at school, I'd be we'd be making. Uh, crappy films on like you know handheld um, whatever and you know in in 
my in our class, uh, all I'd be wanting to do was just going out and keep making more films with um with my friends. And you know, they're all crap. Like you know, <laughs> your friends muck around, and you know. But what what was quite interesting in that experience was that even though the friends would muck around, I'd still always end up with something, and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be great, but it'd still be entertaining or fun, you know, to watch. So I, you know, I guess I I had many attempts of like you know what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I think I settled on um on becoming a you know becoming a, an academic and for, for a while and I still am and that's the bread and butter job but you know I always um, wanted to make make films and it was after I actually got better I um I, I, I again I tried again at like 20 uh, to make a another, to make actually a feature film but we didn't know what the hell we were doing you know mm-hmm. I was too young um, we just had handy cams no sound and you know we tried to make this big feature film and we finished it it was crap when we finished and I, but it was a good experience you know mm-hmm. you learn a lot you learn a lot um, on the failures that you do, like you learn about how you need, you can't really work with friends, you know, you need to get a crew, you need to, but I mean, I learned how to get locations nearly for free, you know, just by talk, talking to them, you know, and I learned, and there was a lot of, lot of interesting things that I learned like about like the editing because I edited it and went over it so many times and just, you know, and, and that's all a learning experience. And then um, later on when I went back to it, uh, and, you know, I was just lucky. I fell into finding quite a lot of real people that had similar, um, they wanted to make films as well. Um, and, you know, I guess I made a lot of shorts and I always wanted to make something different. Um, and when I made a film, I knew that um, I did a lot of market research before I went into making the film, um, just about what could sell and what, what is marketable. And um, I spent, you know, a good two years or more trying to find out um, what people were making in the industry, but like not like so much on like you know multi million dollars, you know, and, and millions of, but like more of the lower because I knew I wouldn't ha- be able to have that kind of money, mm. and I just wanted to have a look. And you know, I noticed that no one had really gone and, and tried to make something that was like um, you know a, a horror film such as the one that I wanted to make. Mm. And I think that I wanted to try and get. Um, yeah, I guess I wanted to to use the experience, the one experience that I had, and try and make something different. You know? mm-hmm. So, uh, going back to those themes that we spoke about earlier, uh, you created this narrative around those themes. Uh, can you just give us uh, the synopsis for the Faceless Man? Yeah. Okay. So I guess it's um, it's a mouthful, but um, yeah. So it's about you know a group of uh, young friends that are you know one struggling with uh, with uh, you know her fear of getting cancer again, and so they go out to um, to a country town and you know almost like a cabin in the woods, and um, you know they're tormented by the locals who have a you know very strict drug policy, and and these kids all they want to do is you know do drugs and have fun, yeah. and um, then they're also terrorized by a. Uh, a faceless monster that may or may not be um, in the house with them as well. It's, uh, and there is also a lot more to the story than that, folks. So, uh, yeah, be prepared. <laughs> it, 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 it's a challenge to, um, to it really, is, it is. you know, pinpoint, to, to be able to sell it in, you know, so yes. long. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, I want to talk about uh, that incredible opening scene for a moment because <laughs> everything about it is great, from the cinematography to the acting to the music uh, and even the extras in the background. I mean, it, it's such a terrific uh, opening scene. And it's all done in one 
take and to give listeners an idea of what's happening, uh, Sophie Thurling, who's, uh, who plays Emily in the film, uh, is sitting in a hospital waiting room uh, where she's having cancer treatment and her father, who she hasn't seen for years, comes to see her and uh, it doesn't end well. But um, can you tell us about shooting that scene from a, from a technical point of view? Because it's, it's really, really good. Yeah, oh, thanks for that. Because, um, yeah, I starting the film, um, so it wasn't nothing was like random in terms of like it was always going to be a long take um, from the moment that that scene was written. Um, my biggest inspiration for that scene was actually Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross um, ah, yes. by David Marmot, yes. which because Al Pacino, if you remember, Al Pacino is given the biggest insult at the end of the, well, he's credited as giving one of the biggest insults when um, he loses the, um, he spends the whole movie trying to sell this guy the, the, the property or whatever. Mm. And then at, and then in one go, he just literally lost that sale and he goes off. Yes. And, I, and I really liked that monologue that he gave. And, you know, David Mamet's work is honestly amazing. So I wanted to try and do that in um, an opening scene. But to do that, you need to build up the drama and escalate it. And I wanted it to be a one-shot because I love the one-shot. Yeah. And I thought that I needed to get people from the start um, and, you know, incorporate and that would be probably the best way to, to get them interested. The problem is, is that if the camera's sitting in one spot for too long, and as you, if, if you watch it, there isn't, I mean, apart from the start where there's movement and towards the end where there's a bit, it's pretty much two people sitting down talking yes. while a lot of other stuff is going on. Mm. But the camera's doing a lot of really interesting things. It's almost like, you know, you're a sphere around these people and you're, you're just observing them, almost mm. like the extras are observing them, mm. you know. Mm. And that's how it was. And that, that needed to be cinematic. It couldn't just be, you know, the camera staying here. It needed to float around. And the music just adds to that. And mm. I think that does, you know, I think, you know, three people do need, um, you know, I, I mean, the actors all did a great job, everyone. We could probably talk about the acting and, yeah. you know, for for 10 minutes if we <laughs> yeah. wanted to. But I, I do want to say that Ruth Sharing, um, that was, and for these are the people that want to know a little bit more, that was um, take seven. And, right, right. I was going to um, ask that how many we takes were, it was. Yeah, we were, that was, if we didn't get that, that wouldn't have, that was not going to, like, we were just extremely lucky. Um, he's he's not the, the biggest guy in the world. He's mm. actually, you know, um, but he, he's, um, it was on take six, his arms were gonna fail out you know, it was a it was a long it was a long so that that shot the way um uh, he he was gonna he was he was gonna like collapse and then we're like that you know i sat with him i'm like we need to get this you know and yeah. then we got up and then um so at about five minutes in his arms were getting a bit weak so he, i'm standing behind him holding his arms up <laughs> so that they won't fall for like the next four minutes of the take so <laughs> it was it was a lot of teamwork between me and him to make sure that you know that was um that was there but also um bart wallace who did the score i was like we were we sat down and watched it and i said to him i go i want fur release but I want it. I want it to be my your own ver our own version of it. Yeah. Like I want it to, I want it to start off like that. But it doesn't work. The song doesn't work. It needs to be a dark version of that mm, sort mm. of that song. Mm. Um, and you know, we, I was very very specific on the t style of music that I wanted for that. And I was like, that we need to get this right. And I think Bart spent the longest on the start. Wow. Um, he was very proud when when it finished. But oh, it's tre it's tremendous. The <laughs> the music is tremendous. Yeah, yeah. And I think that um, it was Benny Knopf that really f 
put glued it together because once we had all the ambience and all the mix and everything together after that it was just it was just really cool to just see all that come together mm. at the very end because when we had just when we had nothing the raw sound and everything mm. it was impressive but it it just when it's all glued together it's amazing how how much it just all like the music just brings up the acting you oh, know yeah. with that tension yeah. and then the yeah. ambience just makes it get a lot more sophisticated so yeah was this the first scene that you shot no it no, wasn't no. the first scene that was shot was actually um victor's house scene Right, okay. Right, right. Um, okay, um, so The Faceless Man, it, it's a mishmash of, of genres. Um, mm. First and foremost, it's a horror film uh, with one mm. of the best designed Australian horror characters in recent memories. Uh, mm. Let me just tell you that. Um, <laughs> and you've so, got. So you're, so sorry, so you really enjoyed the, the, the bad, big bad in this. Oh, what? wow, yeah, no, that, that was tremendous, tremendous design. Um, but you've also got comedy um, with some pretty funny uh, villains. <laughs> like the bikey thug uh, Barry the Cunt. Um, <laughs> and, and you've got teen drama as well, featuring uh, every character stereotype from uh, the jock to the pretty girl to the drug dealer. And uh, th- this constant genre switch, it's never a bad thing, but was mm. The Faceless Man ever going to be just one genre, like a full-blown horror, for example? No. No. <laughs> no. It was, it's pretty much what you said. I, yeah. I was um, – I mean, I wanted to play around with the, the genre a lot and mm. – I, like I said, I did a lot of research and I watched a lot of films before venturing into mine. And I watched a lot of exploitation. I watched a lot of, um, you know, horror films. And I, I was actually very impressed with um, Get Out when I saw it, just how it was able to blend um, with mash genres in that, you know. Um, and also, I guess, looking at something simple like Wolf Creek, um, the first 40 minutes are very, like, it's almost just setting up the journey, yes. you know. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I could do the same thing. I could like really put people on a ride for the first 40 minutes. And then the last part of the film can be where all the horror stuff starts coming out, you know. Um, and I think that stuff that uh, that even Tarantino played with uh, when in um, in Death Proof, like changing the genres of like this is a a hangout film to horror to another, you know, a bit of a mystery. Then you're in an action film at the end, you know. Um, so that was about playing uh, playing around with. I wanted people to start off with the drama. I wanted them to go to like this uh, party. Drug, you know, drug fuel, drug fuel party scene, and then I wanted to just go on a bit of like a mystery, a bit of a comedy, and then I wanted to throw in the, the horror elements, you know. But I mean, throughout the film, you you and I think because the start is so dark, mm. um, that's probably why the tone's always consistent with the dark elements that come up. And mm. you know, even though the comedy is there, it's um it's pretty dark humor, you know. Mm. Like um, a, a fun little fact is that a lot of the the cast they read the script. Um, and I don't know if this was because they just even you know some people don't read the script properly or whatever, but um, they they actually didn't pick up a lot of the, the humor in the, in the scripting stage, and I don't think they picked up on it while we were shooting. And I think it was because it was just a lot of irony, um, and it's just irony and, and really dark. And you know, people were just unsure with certain elements. You know, like um, I don't think people expected Andy McPhee's. Um, scenes to be that hilarious yeah. but they, you know they were um, and um, yeah so I, I th- and, you know when we did have do the screening um, I was heavily surprised in the terms of laugh all out laughing that the film did get um, and which, which is fantastic because in the spots people were meant to laugh they were laughing and yeah, in the spots yeah. they were meant to be holy shit the cinema was dead yeah, so yeah. you know um, that was good oh it worked 
<laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I've had a few people. I mean, Bobby from Film Threat loved it, and mm. he actually said that it all complements each other. You know, mm-hmm. but another guy watched it and said that he didn't feel that it, it worked. So, I mean, it, it, it's gonna get those kind of like responses from people. Some people are gonna really think that no, nah, that that's awesome, and some people are gonna be like, oh, I expected a a really dark film. You know, mm-hmm. so. Mm. Um, let's go back to that uh, awesome horror character, um, the faceless man. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, what did you call him before the? Did did you have another name for him? No, 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 was no. The yeah. um, he was designed uh, by Austin uh, Mengler uh, and mm. yourself. Uh, can you take us through the evolution of the design of the faceless man? Because he didn't always look like uh, what what we see in the film, did he? Oh yeah, there was. Oh, yeah, as yeah, if you look at Chapter Five Studios. Uh, uh, posts. I've put up a lot of concept art that you know we we went through, and there was like about 30, 30 designs that Austin did. He did a lot, um, and you know originally there was a much more muscular, much more mon- more monster look. And we as we went through and you know our budget and what Emma Rose could make because Emma Rose was the makeup artist. So there was a constant, um, you know, there was a big thing in that Austin needed to be able to create the vision that I wanted and then that vision that he made needed to be replicated into film just as good. So we had, we had constant back and forth with Emma as well to be able to make sure that whatever Austin created was honored in the film because I didn't want it to be like he create the final design and it looked completely different in the film, you know? (laughs) So there was a constant flow from that. And then we decided as we're making it that he kept, you know, and there was a few designs that did that were really, really good, and I really wanted to see. Especially, there was stuff that we didn't even end up getting to do that could be used in the future, like the face opening up, and there was another face inside the face, which mm-hmm. we wanted to try and do, but you know, there was just no way to do that um, with the budget that we had. So that had, that idea got scraped, but you know, maybe used in the future. There was a lot of designs that he did that you know that um, uh, look quite amazing, but we just didn't have the money for it, especially the big beast and hulking ones that he did. Mm. Um, but, you know, eventually we decided on it had to be more man than monster, you know, and uh, that was the kind of thing we were going for uh, with the film. So, yeah. It's uh, it's such a great design. Um, and uh, there's also some uh, pretty impressive makeup effects in the film. Uh, mm. A lot of violence, a lot of, a lot of heads being hacked off and, and bodies being cut in half. Uh, uh, what, what was the biggest challenge for you uh, in that department? Yeah, I, I would actually say the whole film was a challenge, to be honest. Um, I wouldn't just say it was like one part. I'd say that just like I said when before when we endeavor to make something this different you're gonna get a lot of reallys and whys from nearly everyone i think and um it was just like with in terms of makeup like there was one day where all the blood froze you know and i think emma and dale spent the whole day and that was you know real troopers you know like we were out in the freezing cold in the factory and this was you know when one we had to cut we had to saw off one guy's head and he was you know david uh the actor Dave Beamish was really, he was a tramp too because he was like in, in the cold and every, everything that, that Dale wanted to do um, didn't work that day. Uh, and then I'm just like, oh, well, we have to, we have, and you know, we finished literally as the sun went up wow. and that was the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was many other challenges as well. Like, I mean, probably the hardest thing for me was shooting a faceless man scene um, backwards. Mm-hmm. So... 
that meant that we shot it literally over like a seven-day period and we'd go in for one or two shots here and there and then leave and go out. I think that was just how the schedule was done considering the actor's timetable and like when makeup could be done. And if you've, you've seen the film, there's a lot of like transition like where people had to stand and then in the edit, you know, it's a bit complicated to say without spoil with spoilers mm-hmm. over here, but there was a lot of complicated setups and stuff. And you can just imagine that like, people that were observing at the time, probably that, you know, they wouldn't have any fucking idea what the fuck is James doing or what the hell is going on. Like one minute I'm doing this one minute. So there was a lot of frustration that was happening. And, um, I just, and it's really, it's hard because I really knew that I was the only one that knew how to cut the film together at one point. I I was the only one that knew what was going on. If I screwed up, it was, everyone was going to suffer for it, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was probably the biggest um, challenge, really, because there were just, I mean, there was a lot, and it's funny, there was some plot points that got dropped and cut completely. So there was even more, you wow, know, and it's wow. just like, yeah, and it just like, and then, yeah, and I think that even I would say this script was, was a really brutal, hard one to get right because there were just so many things um, that could have really just... Um, yeah, I uh, made a lot of changes while we were making the film and there was, like, a lot of, like, um, things that I wanted to improve on, you know. There was stuff that I was just like, we don't need to say this, we can cross all this out. So th- that probably created... While I reckon we shot the best version of this script, mm. honestly, mm-hmm. um, that obviously created a lot of confusion with some people. So, you know, um, about, you know, I guess that's just the thing at the indie level where, like, you know, instead of just doing a job, everyone's highly passionate about what they want to do. Mm. Um, and then, I, yeah, I mean, that, that's prob- that was probably the hardest challenge for it, you know, but, mm. uh, especially with the complicated days and stuff. Uh, we, we had a lot of... Uh, a lot of extras and bucks to manage on some days, and that was that was hard as well. But that was more battling, like, the sun to make sure that we could, you know, shoot everything within the day. Mm-hmm. How long did it take to shoot? Uh, so it was a 31-day shoot, right. um, but about 16 of them were shot in a row right. at the Jumana location. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that, was, that was really hard because everyone was living together and um, we were working 12, 14 days every day. So that's, um, you can just imagine what kind of stuff just happens in that. <laughs> in that period and you know people can get shitty and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and then everyone everyone loves I think it goes to a honeymoon phase with films where at the start <laughs> everyone loves everyone because they're on a film but by the midway and towards then everyone wants to kill someone so um, especially when you're living together I yes think, yeah, you know? yeah. But, um, and this is just a, I think this is just a like we had very minimal budget. Mm. So I think it's just a problem that, you know, when you've got more, you can create that communication system and really have the director live somewhere else where they're not on location with everyone and have to put up with everything. Yes, yeah. So, you know, yeah. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, speaking of that cast, uh, you managed to cast some big names uh, in the film, including uh, Roger Ward and, and Andy McPhee, who's great in everything he does and is in so much. Uh, how did you convince those two to come on board, or, or how did you approach those two and, and, and get them on? Yeah, cool. So Andy McPhee, I, um, I, the character in the film, for those that wanted to know, was actually written for him directly. Wow. Um, so wow. if I didn't get him, I was screwed. Um, mm-hmm. And I... 
you know, got in touch with him while he was in America and he, um, you know, I told him the gist of that, you know, I'm making a horror film, I've got a character I wrote for you. And he goes, oh, okay, mate, well, when I get down, we'll have a meet. So he uh, he wanted to meet and um, he actually lives around where I live, wow. um, Craigie Brunway. Um, and, you know, we met up and, you know, it's funny, it was so funny because when I met him, he kept saying, mate. And I nearly started laughing because I'm like, your character says, mate, at the end of every line that he says in the movie. And um, I go, this is like, you know, you have to play this character. Like, you can't, like, say no. And I told him the gist of it. And I go that it's kind of like, you know, it's almost like, think of it like Wolf Creek, your character in that, just times 100. Mm. And, um, you know, and he thought about it. And then I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, but, you know, and then I told him everything. I'm like, and, you know, what things that he would end up doing. And, you know, he, he liked the idea. He, he, he liked, he thought he could work with me, like me. And, you know, so I that convinced him. And then I'm like, look, we don't, it's not many days, you know, we can do it over three, four days. And, you know, um, and so he came, yeah, and then he was uh, pretty enthusiastic. He's great to work with. Um, he brings a lot to the table, by the way. Like, they, he just improved the character even more. Like, he'd just say lines, and I'd just be like, wow, that lot. We'd talk about it before. Uh, he just really knows how to analyze a script. Yes. You know? And yeah. just be like, okay, I can say this instead, and that will, and it just it'd be hilarious, you know? <laughs> so, or it'd be great, as in, like, we'd be like, wow, that was really good, you know? And, and like, yeah, like you said, he's just fantastic in everything that he does, you know? So, um, but with um, Roger Ward, um, I got in touch with him and sent him a very nice email because, like, I was a big fan of some of his stuff, like, you know, um, Mad Max, of course. Um, mm. That Turkish shoot, he's really good in as well. Like yes. he slaps, yeah. he slaps a girl to death in that mm. film. I mm. think, um, mm. and that's quite. Oh, and he, he's got a good role in that film. Um, and yeah, every other thing I see him in, he's really good in as well. And I, um, I sent him the, um, the the script and the idea. And originally, you know, uh, we we're going to get him to play a different character, but he loved um, the role of um, you know the, the sheriff of the town, and um, and so. Oh, that gave me an idea to like try and rewrite it so that it was kind of like almost like Fifi from Mad Max left and with a whole bunch of his, you know, members and just went nuts. Yes. And yeah. that was the kind of, and then that actually really, because then we were able to get a whole bunch of bikes and it just really just came together really well. Mm. And um, Roger was one of the few people that actually had faith in the script from the very start mm. um, and actually sent me some very nice praise and, it was actually really interesting when Daniel um, came up to me. So Daniel's my uh, business partner with my company, but he also played Brad in the film. Right. But he was also uh, one of the producers. So, he, yeah, and he came over to me and he goes, because Roger, Roger just got interviewed by someone that day. And he goes, Roger has a very, very good understanding of the script. Wow. Like he broke it down so thoroughly that even I didn't know some of the things he was saying. So <laughs> um, that, was the, that was what really, I mean, that was really um, nice because Roger was able to see all the themes and stuff. Mm. And I guess it just comes with experience when yes. you've done so much. And, you know, he's a bit of, he's a writer himself. I'm actually reading his book at the moment, The Set. And it's a very... Um, a very interesting book, um, and he's, he's got a very articulate sense of, of writing. Um, so that's probably why he's able to see, you know, more into the, the script and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and he was he was amazing to work with. Like, I mean, like, he's someone, and, you know, he's someone that I can't really do anything that he hasn't done before, you yes, know. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I just like, Roger, you do. But, you know, when I'd be like, you know, and he'd do something awesome, I'd be like, yeah, Roger, well, let's, let's just do it, like, this, t- this way, this time, let's just say it, let's just try it like this. And then he'd do it without questioning. He'd not, he wouldn't be like, oh, no, nah, no, nah, mate. Like, you know, he'd be like, yep, yeah, draw, no worries. And, you know, that was really, um, 
that was really cool to to, to experience. Now I learned a lot from from working with him. Wow, what, yeah. what an experience that must have been. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, Sophie Thurling uh, as well for a little bit because uh, she's terrific in the film, and uh, I just wanted to know um, about casting Sophie and uh, and uh, what it was like working with her. Yeah, I mean, it was um, definitely an experience. Mm. Um, like, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was that the lead in the film had to carry the movie or had to do well. And that was something that I was pretty big on because I'd seen a lot of films where leads had, you know, completely let the production down. And if you're a lead in the film and, you know, you're the person that 80 like, people are watching for the majority of the time. So mm-hmm. it was really, really important that the person I picked um, was going to do the part well. When we were casting for the film, um, we had some very talented people come in, and some people even memorized the whole nine-minute-long take monologue because that was the one that we we tested for. Mm. And um, there was some really good performances, and you know, I actually had a- another actress in mind for the role that worked on a short with me, but she couldn't do it. And then um, Sophie ended up coming in for the role of Nina, but. As soon as she walked in, like you know, I was like, no, 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 you don't. That does, that character doesn't suit. That's not you. Um, try for try for Emily, and she never really read the script before, so she read it cold, and it was um, I don't know. I just I was able to see that. Wow, like that was really impressive for someone that never read those lines before. Um, and it impressed not just me, but. Also, Reese and Daniel that were sitting in on the interview as well. And at the end of the day, it was like a three-way win where we all said that, yeah, she, she's definitely got the part. She's definitely going to do it. But I think there's always like that that gamble when you go with someone so new. And she'd done a few, you know, just a few little things like counter, who's heard of counterplay and like other – what was the other one? Johnny Swade and – there was, a, and it just like there's not, you know. So, but she had a lot of talent, and mm. it just goes to show that, like, I guess when you give someone um, good material that's talented, um, they can perform. Mm. And she put in 110. percent What can I say? You know, mm. like um, she um, even for the, she spent a lot of time doing that long take. You know, um, and she spent a, and she was always, you know, so heavily dedicated throughout throughout the film. So yeah, um, yeah, that's. She's terrific. She's she's absolutely terrific. Um, uh, there's some obvious nods to other films uh, like Reservoir Dogs, for instance, and uh, and maybe uh, the Cars That Ate Paris. Maybe I don't know if that's in there. Um, that? The, uh, the Cars That Ate Paris. So, no, you, uh, you familiar with that about. film? No, I haven't. Peter Weir's first film. Um, no, oh, you should. You which should... part of it was like that? that you oh, just about. the. Um, I guess it's the small town and the people in the small town. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. Check it out. Um, but but what are some of the other films uh, which influence uh, the Faceless Man and the filmmakers who have uh, influenced you as a director? Yeah yeah okay so I guess firstly it's um it's definitely um so Tarantino's work uh and as you said like there's Reservoir there's Reservoir Dogs like I think comes up twice and yeah, Pulp Fiction yeah, yeah. is blended in there a bit um so he's definitely someone that you know I take inspiration from um but also David Lynch like mm. the the Town Orange Lodge is um, a bit of a 
Twin Peaks, yes. Black Lodge and the White Lodge. And this was my Orange Lodge kind of <laughs> location. Um, but also with the whole, you know, the trippy nature, like David Lynch style, like there's a bit of trippy nature in there. Like a, there's a bit of um, a lot of me- metaphorical ways you can take the film as well. And I, that was probably, as I was making it, that was one of the biggest derivatives was not giving people all the answers, letting people come up to an interpretation on their own, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's amazing how people can take from that. And that's what David Lynch uses a lot. So people can uh, make up their own opinions on, or their own ideas on what's happened. Um, also, a bit of, I get a bit of Stanley Kubrick and Polanski, you know, um, the comparisons made. And they weren't really big, but I guess the, um, the gold masks do have an eyes wide shut kind of, yes. you know, the, the yes. eyes, eyes wide shut kind of vibe. And um, I was taking it more from video games, really. Like, I mean, Legend of Zelda was the real big... Um, inspiration for for that really um then wow. uh yeah, so that was that inspiration um who else there was oh yeah the babadook jennifer kent was uh-huh. a big inspiration on um the formation of um because the babadook is a great horror australian horror film Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah and um i love and i and i love that and then i was like that yeah so the babadook and then i was like and then i made the faceless man kind of based off um yeah it was it was a completely different story but mm, her mm. style and you know nightingale was just like amazing you know um <laughs> and I, I yeah and so i i was inspired a lot by because when i saw the babadook i was like oh cool this is like coming out of australia this is like you know and there was a lot of really i mean that was more of a very intimate story that yes. this is a yeah. very wide very wide release but yeah that was a was an inspiration um who else? Uh, Robert Rodriguez is a very um, is a big inspiration as a filmmaker for what he was able to do on El Mariachi, and I I kind of like link my you know uh, way of making Faceless Man to how he was able to to fund and make um and make his film. You know, just that the only difference is that I had a crew yes. and he didn't. That was the <laughs> that was the, I, that's the one difference there. Um, and uh, who else was there? There was another. Um, Oh yeah, so Sam Raimi of Evil Dead was a oh, yes. big inspiration. Uh, but I wanted to derive from the cabin in the woods kind of thing, you yes, know, and make yeah. it like an Australian outback kind of, you know. So, but the Evil Dead is a is a clear not, and you know, I think it was it was Bobby that who, from Film Thought that we recently spoke, and he gave me a really nice compliment in that he felt that when he watched the film, The Faceless Man, he hopes that it'll go and inspire people to go and make films. If it oh, out definitely, there, the, way, yeah. the way the Evil Dead did. Yes. Um, back in, you know, back in uh, 78, uh, 78, I think, or mm-hmm. 80, yeah. But um, that's what he that's what he said. So, and, and I hope, you know, I hope generally it does because, you know, um, it is possible to make a film, like, you know, minimal budget. As long as, like, you, you I guess you're firm and, you know, you, you get your, your, your ideas across. Um, uh, who, there was a – so Evil Dead was definitely – oh, yeah, Wolf Creek, Greg McLean. Yes. Um, that was a clear – like I said before, the first 14 minutes of that are kind of very like these characters getting to know them, getting to like, you know, a bit of like, you know, hints that something bad's going to happen and then they're taken to some, you know, to some town and then uh, John Jarrett was his role and I actually did want him to be in Faceless Man but he couldn't. Mm. but maybe in the future I can put him and Roger Ward together. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, so he and his, his stairs in that movie are fantastic. And in Faceless Man, I kind of use the stairs a few times, <laughs> like two or three times, where characters are just looking and just staring. 
And I just love that. Like, I don't know. I just, in Wolf Creek, it's one of, some of the best moments were when John Drought just stared at that guy <laughs> and just stares at him. And it's just funny, but it's like he's going to kill him. Yeah, um, funny, but uh, horrifying. Yeah, and I love that. And so mm. we use that like three times in, 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 in Facebook. It just works because the characters are so mm. offbeat and, mm. uh, and crazy. Um, the Coen Brothers uh, with Fargo. Uh, that was a really big, that was inspiration for the the two hitman Boris and Morale ah, and also, yes. and also yeah. the, the song that comes in like boom that was that the, the the sign language brothers from the TV show mm. um, that they I was very instrumental to Bart to be like um, I want that song playing like a similar type of song playing when that, when these guys come up when every time and uh, yeah that was a big inspiration for that but yeah there's and uh, we could there's there's heaps of like there's a lot of uh, there's so, there's like even a throwback to Mad Max in it two times. Uh, Roger Ward's character uses a um, yeah, George Miller, uh, but you know Roger Ward uses a watering can, which is what he uses in Mad Max. Yes, yeah. Um, so uh, you know that's a fun little Easter egg for people to see there. Um, but there's there's heaps of throwbacks to even video games. Um, Heaps of uh, you know other other films that people will be able to, to look and and see and see that oh yeah that's from that film and like you know Home Alone references um, you know um, so yeah there's there's, just, there's heaps of like nods that you know um, to other media animation that yeah I just yeah there's just so many and we could talk for hours yeah. about all the different types of things but I, I like I like that you know like yeah. I like when I watch a film and that oh that's that's a little homage to, to that film or you know that's a throwback to, to another film so. and uh, and speaking of Easter eggs I noticed your little uh, chapter five business card in there too yeah because I'm, I'm in the movie that's Are you, what I works oh right yeah at, well there's a at the party I'm the guy that Says I want Jimmy. Oh yes, of course, with the sunglasses on. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that, <laughs> so that's why it works. Um, yeah. yeah, and it comes up. Uh, yeah, it comes up. I think it's, it comes up twice or once. I think. No, uh, no. Yeah, twice. But you really see it on the on the yeah once yeah. really in, in the film. Yeah, terrific yeah, that's because uh, I'm in the, at the party scene. I'm in the film, and you can even say that because I do what I do. That spir- the event spiral. You know, crazy after that. So. Um, I've got one more question, and mm. uh, it's uh, you know this is to do with the Australian film industry as a whole. Uh, but I'm interested to know why you've decided to distribute the film on your own. Because from what I've read, you had some offers from distributors. But uh, mm. yeah, I, I, I want you to talk us through your decision to distribute the film on your own. Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, the offers that you get, like oh well, that I got from Mark. Uh, AFM and like LA when I went down there well, weren't really that good. I mean, it was all in favour of them, and I spoke to quite a lot of people, and and even people that had you know, made movies and gotten deals, and they kind of said the same thing. And a lot of people had just given their movies away and never seen any return at all. Hmm. Um, and that was quite surprising because like and, uh, a lot of these people, even some of them used their own money, but. Some of them didn't, and I think that's the difference with this movie is I use my own money, and yes. you know uh, that was um, something that I, if I did, I wanted to try and get it back. So I did a lot of research, a lot, um, and I also I'm just lucky. I just you know I, I teach marketing, that's my job. Um, oh right. At the university, uh, that's yeah. So you know, and using every day when you go to work and you go through the same branding and stuff all the time, and you're just like that. Well, film's the same thing. I mean, you just 
you got to make sure you have a budget. We do. Um, and, you know, we, we, we've we been very um, fortunate so far to just have a, you know, we've got a really good market. We, I was able to put together a program with um, some people and selected some people to be on the marketing team. And, you know, we've had some like, really cool ideas. Like there's this bike ride idea that we're going to do where all these bikers are going to go around with flags of the faceless man and, you know, go around. And that's going to be a bit of promotion for the movie. You know, we're going to do some graffiti artwork that's going to go around. And then we've got some, we've got a big competition coming up, um, really big. So all people need to do is if they uh, buy a ticket or like our social media, they go in the running and um, it's a big cash prize. So that's pretty cool. Um, And, you know, uh, there's going to be, I've just, yeah, I mean, it's just something that, like, I'm like, well, I can put it for Australia and New Zealand. I can do it myself because, I mean, it's not, it's not that like now the whole industry has just changed. It's yes, just there's so many disruptions. Mm. It's just so many disruptions around. For the rest of the world, I couldn't do what I do because I don't know the market. That, well, even yes. though I've heard very successful stories of people that have self-distributed in America, there's a, there was actually a mob that went around. They did all the states and they promoted in each of the states and they made like. They made good. They made decent money from doing what they're doing because there are just so many people in America, and um, but for Australia, you can. I mean, for, for, I mean, I was just fortunate that my budget wasn't that high, and you know, it's definitely after doing a lot of research, I definitely can recoup or like if I do it properly, uh, just by doing different states myself. I mean, even cinemas aren't. I mean, were a lot more cheaper than I expected. Um, even though you still do need money in a budget, and I know that there are a lot of people that want to do what I do with uh, doing with the film uh, but they generally either don't have money to do it or they um, they don't have the knowledge or skills to be able to do the marketing you know? mm-hmm. um, and also people I generally ask get to spend a bit of money here and there you know so I guess uh, it's a bit of one way it's a bit of a gamble but the second way it's like um, for us it's, it's just paying off you know like we're getting more cinemas we're getting more interest um, the classic cinema branch uh, they are, are they are so happy because the red carpet's selling really well mm. and they're just wrapped that they're going to have a good event on that night. Oh, fantastic, you know? yeah. So they're, and they're wanting to open up more and we're trying to get the – now we're also looking at Perth and Sydney because mm. there's been a lot of interest in, in um, Sydney for the Ritz to open up there. Wow. And, um, and Perth because Austin's from Perth to do one to do one there. So we might play around with doing one in each – State, but then also um, going on a bit of a country tour next 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 year. But that, it just really depends. Like, there's a lot of news that I can't really say that yes, know, may yeah, happen. And, yeah. You know, I don't want to blow the horn that you know these things aren't going to happen. But there could be something good that's coming out in the next few weeks. Um, but again, like you know, that could all fall through. You know, mm. so there's a lot of things that <laughs> it's, it's just like anything that there's a lot of things that can just fall through at a, at any moment. But mm. um, the, the, the marketing, you know, it just it's something that you have to be consistent at, and that you know. You, you have to always, like, I'm always, you know, posting on all the social media. We've got someone working on Instagram from the team, someone on Twitter, um, inviting different people that we can to get more reviews. Um, this week, I've got a whole bunch of more reviews coming out. And um, I think that we were very fortunate in the first wave of reviews that came out uh, because we got between seven, eight, and ten. <laughs> um, and that was just, like, especially the film threat one. Yes. Uh, was a very big boon to us because they gave us the quote, one of the best films of 2019. And that, and I know that's a huge statement. Yeah. Um, mm. And, you know, a lot of, maybe a lot of people won't agree with that. Mm. But, I mean, 
that's still something. And yeah. It's still, uh, it's still like a really good promo tool that we, we've been able to, to use. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit, that was lucky. And to be able to keep going to reviewers, uh, even, you know, and just, trying to get whatever quote that they can get. And mm. I thought it was hilarious when the Chatterbox guys reviewed us and said that, and they were kind of like in their review, they were shocked. You could tell on their face, they honestly didn't know, because I don't do horror. Yeah. Um, they, they honestly didn't know what, and they were even like, that. Like quite honestly, this movie shouldn't exist. <laughs> they, and it was hilarious because I was laughing and the other people that on the crew were laughing too. And I'm like, and I haven't sent a message. I go, you're right, this movie shouldn't. It shouldn't. Um, but we somehow we just kept pushing through and, you know, we did do it. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah. There you go. Um, James, uh, congratulations on the film and uh, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's been great chatting mm-hmm. with you. Okay, thanks, Matt. Uh, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on both iTunes and SoundCloud. For all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews, you can visit www.cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Cinema Australia. 